Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp. A um, few things I have to say. One is we personally are involved both as a lifestyle, the ketogenic diet, but also through my 16 years of clinical practice of what is effective. What do people need to take sometimes, all the time, to support their ketogenic diet? You'll get bits and pieces of this ongoing week after week. It's important to be comprehensive. In one way, it's simple. and one way, it's a little bit complicated. Hi, this is Dr. Carl Goldcamp for another session of the Keto Naturopath. I want to give you a big, broad idea up front and why I'm very interested in the ketogenic diet passion, you might say. One is, I think, as is being discovered nowadays in the last 10 to 15 years, the applications are far, far, far beyond anything we've ever imagined. So I thought it was necessary to really begin the building of the complexity of how the ketogenic diet can be used in so many situations by starting with the history and the evolution of fasting and the ketogenic diet. They're connected through all the history. It really doesn't become clear about what the ketogenic diet is until the early 1900s. So I figure I'll bring you up through history pretty quickly, talk about what has happened in the 20th century, and then actually the pretty exciting things that are happening right now in the 21st century. How coincidental that it really happened at the century change for the most part. Okay, so basically what we're going to talk about tonight is that we are standing on the shoulders of giants who have laid down the foundation of all that we know about the ketogenic diet. And I think it's important uh, for one to understand uh, the incremental improvements on the ketogenic diet that have been delivered by one person after another, but also the context in which that person was working. So let's start. The first that we know about anything related to fasting and the, and the ketogenic diet goes back uh, 450, 460 years BC, and that's Hippocrates, this, the father of modern medicine. What we know, and has been documented, is that he used fasting for epilepsy. And I have at least two references that he himself was epileptic, how severely epileptic he was and uh, how much he cured himself. If he did cure himself, I have no idea. But he used fasting for epilepsy, which is called a falling, falling disease. Then from there, there's a uh, documentation in the Bible, actually, in the book of Mark, in which a um, parent brings his fathers to the disciples and says, can you hear, can you heal my son? And none of the apostles could heal the son. And then he went to Christ, and Christ prayed and fasted with the child, Uh, actually had the child fast and prayed with the child. And so the disciples, the apostles said, why couldn't we heal this, this person? We've been successful with others. And Christ said, this, for this particular situation, you need fasting and prayer. It wasn't just a laying on of hands. I thought that was pretty interesting. And so you can actually cite that as well, both in the Bible and start where everybody else starts, which is Google. Okay, so now we start, we're going to jump way up to the future. Well, the past for us and the future from that particular reference. It's 1863. And in 1863, an interesting thing happened. There was a man called William Banting. We're now in London, 1863. 
actually 1862. And this is a man who's very successful by any means back then. He's rather corpulent. He's a carpenter primarily. He's also an undertaker for the royalty, and he's doing quite well. But he's become pretty portly. And so he goes from doctor to doctor to see how he can possibly lose weight. So he goes to various doctors. In fact, some of the treatments are so bad, he has to be hospitalized to cure some of the treatments. Well, eventually, he is referred to or discovers by chance a doctor by the name of Harvey. And he is a a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons. And he's an ear, nose, and throat specialist, an ENT doc. This is an incredible lucky time that William Banting happens to visit Dr. Harvey. Why is it so lucky? Well, Dr. Harvey just got back from Paris. By the way, just getting back from Paris was a bit of a trip back then. They obviously had to take a boat, a carriage, and so on and so forth. It was a big deal to go to any conference. So he was at a conference, and he heard another speaker, a French physician by the name of Claude Bertron. Don't get too tied up in the names, but it is interesting. Claude Bertrand goes on to be a very famous doctor, but at this particular lecture, he was trying to convey his belief that the liver actually makes glucose. That was a big, you know, a a big idea that had never been said before. And he also thought that the pancreas secreted some sort of juice that tended to balance, that is to kind of consume the sugar. That's all he knew. Pancreas uh, secreted a juice that controlled, that ate the sugar, consumed the sugar, balanced the sugar in the body, and the liver actually made sugar. Nobody had said that before. So Harvey's listening to this, and he's an ENT doc. So he goes back to London, and William Banting comes into his office saying, you know, I'm pretty heavy. Um, Anything you can do to help me? He says, you know, I've been thinking is that if this is true, what I just heard at this conference then maybe let's take out all foods that we think are sugar-oriented. So the obvious were the cakes and the grains and the, and the bagels and the croissants and all those things. Take all those things out of the diet. And he actually came up and created a diet for William Banting that was, in essence, a ketogenic diet. That word has not even been uh, created yet. But... Um, So William Banting, basically, it's no carbs. If we're going to use that word, no carbohydrates. And specifically, what what that diet consisted of was six ounces of bacon, beef, mutton, venison, kidney, fish, poultry game, um, any vegetables except, except potatoes. At dinner, he could have two to three glasses of claret, sherry, Madeira. That's interesting. He could drink tea but without milk or sugar. Champagne, port, beer were forbidden, and he could eat only one ounce of toast. So Banting had been struggling with weight. He he really wanted to lose a lot of weight, and it hasn't worked out for the previous three or four years that he's been visiting these doctors. He started to lose a pound a week. And in fact, in the course of a year, uh, he lost over 50 pounds. So that was amazing. So the only restriction in the diet were sugars and starches. So this was because Dr. Harvey had listened to Dr. Claude, what I've just told you about, and came up with his diet of, let's take this away. And suddenly this guy, Mr. Banting, William Banting, uh, drops his weight. 
Well, a few problems come up. One is, this is against the medical established view of how to lose weight. Consequently, Dr. Harvey's practice is starting to be ridiculed. Meanwhile, since William Banting is so affluent, he takes it upon himself and he writes a small booklet, a small booklet on this particular diet. He calls it the letter on corpulence addressed to the public. He publishes this for free. In fact, he publishes it for three for free for three or four editions. And it becomes wildly popular. So it becomes wildly popular, and I think it went on to 16 publications. But Dr. Harvey's practice started to suffer. He was an outcast medically, and he was he was about to be taken up against to losing his license. That's how severe it was. So he was pulled back in. Why I point that out, because we're going to go into the future. And so Dr. Harvey was, in essence, the messenger of what he, he was putting an idea into practice because he was a family physician, in essence. He worked with people. He was helping the person in front of him. He wasn't just a researcher. So Dr. Claude in Paris was a researcher. And so it's fascinating. So the man in the middle, the messenger, didn't do well in this particular story. Dr. Uh, William Banting did very well. He lost his weight. He wrote a book, became popular, and was basically a pretty, uh, pretty well uh, uh, written out, documented diet. And it was so popular, in fact, Banting's name actually went into the English language uh, it was one of three names that went into the English language. Um, the word to bant, as not, not to be confused with to banter, the word to bant meant to go on this particular diet. It's called the banting diet, or it was called the banting diet because he wrote it up. Even though Dr. Harvey made it, he wrote it up. Um, it's really interesting also that if you're in South Africa and you talk about a ketogenic diet or anything about that, they still refer to it, oh, you're bant, you're on the bant, or you're on the banting diet. Interesting that, eh? So, um, in case you're curious, the other two names that came into the English language were uh, an Irishman captain by the name of Boycott and uh, Louis Pasteur and the word, obviously, of pasteurization. Pretty interesting. Okay, so that was in the 1860s. So now around 1910, really around 1900, we can uh, be general, there was a, call him a health guru. And he was a cross between a Charles Atlas and a Jacqueline and at this particular time and place, he was living and working in Battle Creek, Michigan. And if you know Battle Creek, Michigan, you think of Kellogg's, uh, the cereal. So the Post cereal and the Kellogg cereal, you bet they're in the Battle Creek, Michigan. And they were of this era, and they were doing very well. And so he was working at one of their um, sanatoriums, their health camps. Here's a man who became uh, a multimillionaire for his day. And he put out a magazine called The Physical Culture. It's all about muscles and so on and so forth. But the things that he believed in were fasting, exercise, no sugar, no white bread. I don't know where he got this, by the way. No sugar, no white bread, and um, saunas. So he started basically a health camp. And it, this was a pretty popular place in the United States at the time. And primarily due to his magazine. His name was uh, McFadden. Uh, Bernard McFadden. And in fact, he was the mentor for Charles Atlas, who was the mentor for, um, uh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he was the mentor, 
that is uh, Bernard McAdden, was the mentor for Jacqueline as well. Isn't that interesting what's come out of this? So in his fasting disciplines, uh, he would fast people up to three and four weeks. 14 days, 21 days were not unusual. Upton Sinclair, uh, a famous author at the time, went through his program on fasting. In fact, he was so impressed with fasting that he, Upton Sinclair, wrote a book called The Fasting Cure. Upton Sinclair was the author of The Jungle, and uh, that has his own story to follow as well. Mark Twain was another person that was big in fasting at that time. So fasting was probably the healthiest thing one could do from the 1900s to the 1920s, just as a general reference in terms of what the general population, it wasn't medically prescribed except for places like this. But this was considered generally a non-medical location. So Bernard McFadden was getting such attention that an osteopath by the name of Conklin went to uh, see what he was doing, in fact, became his assistant. Conklin's reputation for being the fasting doctor, and he was an osteopath, and that was still not quite conventional medicine, um, was getting to be so popular. He was getting a long waiting list of people to come and see him. And so at this point, there was a very wealthy New York attorney who had an epileptic son. And so he took him to local doctors and they couldn't help him. In fact, there was only two medications for epilepsy at that point. It was uh, bromide, potassium bromide and uh, phenobarbital, the truth serum. And it just basically, it did help some epileptics. It didn't cure anybody, but it made them feel pretty dopey. So many epileptics came to see Conklin at Bernie McFadden's sanatorium to uh, experience the, the fasting cure, they would call it. So he would put epileptics fasting on a water fast as an average for 20, 21, 22 days, some less. And what he found in the first couple days that their seizures decreased. Some actually were cured. What does cured mean? It means they never had another seizure after they got off the fast. This is phenomenal. So this starts to gather a lot of attention. And one of the uh, pediatrician in New York, a pretty famous pediatrician at the time, heard of this, and he goes to the sanatorium to watch Conklin, now the assistant for Bernie uh, Madoff, Madoff, right, Bernie McFadden, and sees that it actually is having a result. So he starts doing it himself, and he makes a presentation to the American Medical Society of that time about, about um, taking uh, this, this Howard's, Howland's, um, I mentioned this person's Howland's name, uh, the wealthy attorney who had the epileptic son, took him to Conklin, that he didn't get cured, but he tremendously decreased the seizures he had. So it was a phenomenal change. And, and so Howland was very affluent, as I mentioned. So he decided to put a lot of money into research. He had a brother that was a pediatrician at Johns Hopkins, and he said, I will give you money, money if you start a center for, for epilepsy and figure out why this non-medical person was so successful at treating my son. He was determined. So he, in essence, started himself up, started Johns Hopkins, paid for Johns Hopkins to start a center on epilepsy, which then becomes the center, by the way, spoiler alert, uh, the Center for Ketogenic uh, Diet and its applications. So that gets going. Um, 
Howland also approaches other doctors at Harvard. There's a number of doctors that are now getting into why is fasting being so effective for epilepsy? And they, so they studied the blood as much as they could back then, and they found that, well, they, there's this thing called ketone bodies. They knew what ketone bodies were, but they didn't think that that had anything to do with epilepsy. They thought, in fact, it was a side effect, a... Um, a, I wanted to say garbage, a uh, waste product of metabolism, which they're not entirely wrong there, a waste product of metabolism that was basically going to be cleared out of the body that had nothing to do with uh, helping epilepsy. Coincidentally, so now we're in the 1920s, by the way, coming into the 1919, 1920, 1921, there is kind of an inflection point of coming together coincidentally of all these different researchers and then Howland, uh, the corporate attorney from New York, being willing to sponsor research on this for his son, primarily. This this event, this kind of idea, gets repeated about 80 years later, and we'll talk about that as well. So what we find is that they know in diabetics at this time, the diabetics, as they get worse, as they get into what they call ketoacidosis, so they knew what ketones were, they get into ketoacidosis. Well, diabetics tended to produce these ketone bodies as well. They weren't quite sure why. They thought it was possibly an alternative fuel. Um, and they also knew in, in their trials and tribulations with diabetics that if diabetics are on a high-fat diet, or, or if people, sorry, if people in general are on a high-fat diet, they also produced these ketone bodies. They didn't know why these ketone bodies were produced. They didn't see them as, as doing anything particular. But there was a Dr. Wilder at the Mayo Clinic who ends up coining the, the word ketogenic diet, but there were so many other little moving parts. It was, it was an interesting series of coincidences. And so he was, in essence, pointing away, saying, you know, maybe there's a diet that can be, that can generate high ketones, and then we can compare this to fasting. So he didn't know if that was going to work or not, but he said, well, let's see if we can duplicate the blood work uh, in people to the blood that are, at that are epileptic that, are, uh, that is just like the fasting epileptics. Interesting, right? So he, they, they start that. They start making a diet. They have to figure out, well, how much fat, how much protein. They knew that if they kept the carbs low, so a high-fat, low-carb diet, they knew would create ketones. They didn't consider that healthy by any stretch of the imagination. That's why it never really got anybody's attention. But now there was a motivation to duplicate the blood work of epileptics. Interesting. So the colleague of Dr. Wilder, also at the uh, Mayo Clinic, I'm going to stop giving names because I know it gets confusing. He actually worked out that, well, let's just give one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. And these are primarily in children we're talking about now. And we will give no more than 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrates per day. And after the first couple months, if success, we'll increase that maybe to uh, 20, but not beyond that. Interesting. And then the rest will just give fat. So the rest, they knew how to uh, calculate what they call basal, basal metabolic rate. So basically how much calories did uh, a child need to consume in the course of the day. So that's what they did. 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrates per day and one gram of protein per kilogram of body weight. By the way, 
do you realize that formula has not changed really ever? Amazing. Okay, so they then obviously go on and they realize, wow, this is creating uh, a pretty similar effect to fasting. And the obvious thing with fasting is that fasting has to come to an end. You can't fast forever. That's called starving. And some people actually called the fasting protocol the starving protocol. But the interesting thing was that uh, then in treating people with fasting, the epileptics, uh, pediatric epileptics with fasting is that there are many, when they stopped fasting, their seizures didn't come back at all. Now, clearly it was a percentage and the records were we're not quite, you know, we have no formal study. We're having some people say their numbers are better than others and they cite this and they cite that, but it takes a, the first official this is going to blow your mind. The first official multicenter study on the ketogenic diet for epileptic, epileptics was done in, um, I think it's 1998. So it's that far into the future. So in terms of fasting, there's still vague numbers. I know that fasting is, is before the ketogenic diet. So both of these are, clearly they've seen some amazing results um, the drugs at the time are just not very attractive. They're just doping kids and leaving, leaving them lifeless. And so from the 1920s to about the 1930s, the ketogenic diet is all a rage. They're trying to figure out how it's happening, how, why it happens, you know, how to improve it. And guess what? They don't ever get to find out why it's happening. They just know that it does help. That if they stick to one gram per kilogram of body weight, if they stick to... 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrates per day and the rest fat for anybody that they will have beneficial effects. You know what is interesting, by the way, the coincidence that they found, you know, elevated ketones in diabetics and, and they knew that, um, quote unquote, unhealthy individuals with high fat and low carb diets had elevated ketones, even though they used the data, the rough data of that time from diabetics the diabetics, they never got, they never put one and one together thinking that maybe if they put diabetics on a high carb, uh, on a low carb, high fat diet, there'll be a benefit. So they just left that. That was, that thread was not picked up for nearly another, not quite a hundred years, but uh, certainly 80 or 90 years into the future. Okay, so let's go forward. There's a number of other things. We have the ketogenic diet is now formally coined at the Mayo Clinic. That was in 23. So while the ketogenic diet is all a rage, a whole nother character comes in view. And this character is an Arctic explorer, a Canadian Arctic explorer of Icelandic descent, the Halmar Stephenson. And uh, he's going strictly to the Arctic. And he is an anthropologist. Uh, initially, he's meant to go for just a couple months, and a number of mistakes happen, and he's there for a couple of years. He goes back a number of times. And besides all his anthropological things that he discovers, which are all fascinating, and learns a language, et cetera, et cetera, and a lot of mapping and a lot of discovery, he realizes that, and he firmly believes, because he's had to live with the Inuits for years, that he lived, and they live, without carbohydrates at all, that they just eat on what they kill. It's so what they kill is obviously a lot of fish, um, seals, walruses, um, some land animals, of course. And 
So he cited this, and he was so certain of that after his own experience, so he certainly wasn't making it up, that he voluntarily submitted himself with one of his co-explorers to, in essence, live a year in a hospital under observation and total documentation of everything he'd eaten, eats for a year while being watched. And so that happens around 1930, and it's actually documented. You can actually get that document online should you want to. But what he proved is that one didn't need carbohydrates in their diet. To me, that kind of blows my mind. You know, it's almost a truth that I personally don't want to hear. Uh, but he, he proved that, and they, you know, did his blood work. They uh, followed him, and, um, and so specifically what he did, he did 20% of his calories were from... 20% of his calories were from protein, 80% were from fat, and his and he had no no carbs. And by the way, just to be a little more technical about this, it actually is impossible to have a carbohydrate-free diet. Why do I mean? Even if you're a meat eater. And by the way, when they ate meat, they didn't just eat muscle meat, they ate the visceral organs, what we now call awful, you know, the lungs and the and the stomach, and the liver, and the kidneys, and the all of it was eaten. So there's a lot of nutrition that gets isolated in these organs that we no longer eat. We just basically eat muscle meat for the most part as a culture. So when you eat even muscle meat, there are there is sugar in the muscle. It's called glycogen. There's sugar in your muscle. There's sugar in the animal's, mus- animal's muscles. And so when you're taking that in, that actually gets converted into carbs. Glycogen is short for glucose. It means it's a step away from being um, into glucose. So that's been proven. So that's sort of a an off to the side. It's not exactly ketogenic, but actually they did they didn't they didn't explore the ketogenic side of that. They he verified you didn't need carbs. Um, I find that uh, potentially mind blowing. And I wanted to inject here a little reality on the current situation in the Arctic. And it's uh, I don't mean to be political in any way, but it's impossible to go back and eat that way nowadays. Uh, we've polluted the planet, and the way it goes today, if you were to go online, punch into Google, you'll find that uh, Inuits are known to have some of the highest toxic, or the most toxic breast milk of any place in the world. And you say, well, that, and it's primarily it's uh, PCBs and DDT. DDT less so now since it's fading from the environment, we hope. Uh, but PCBs, and you go, well, why is that? It's basically due to a phenomenon called long-range atmospheric transport, which basically means everything gets sucked up season after season. As it, From the winter, everything settles down and gets frozen in the earth, and the spring comes, and the farming, and so on, and the dust actually gets drawn up to the poles. So uh, the Arctic starts to bioaccumulate, if you will, in the ice, and then the animals that live there, and then the fish, and so on and so forth. So they get higher concentrations of PCBs. And so if they're eating the diet that is, as I described before, they're going to get higher concentrations. And it's been proven, and you want to check that out. It's depressing, but true. So they have to think about, well, how do they do their diet differently now? Okay. So on from there, now we're... Now, that was 1930s. We're going to jump up to 1958, and another inflection point happens. In London, England, and also uh, in the United States, two uh, studies are written, or two journal articles appear. So in the United States, there's a journal article written in JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, simply under weight reduction by a guy named Pennington. 
and it basically says that um, you don't need carbs. <laughs> you know, pretty straightforward. It's a little, little more elaborate than that, and I don't think the details are important because it comes to the same conclusion. But what was interesting in the in who had read that article in JAMA was a young cardiologist, 28-year-old young cardiologist. He read it, and he was inspired to think of how he could change the diet of his patients. His name was Dr. Robert C. Atkins. He would then go on 14 years later to write a book on the Atkins Diet Revolution in 1972. And the Atkins Diet becomes... You know, it's it's just like Dr. Harvey was of 100 years before. He was ostracized, but he was so popular that he could certainly make a living. And so, of course, anybody in conventional medicine, and he was a, a medical doctor. He was an MD. He was a cardiologist. So he came up the hard way, and he was thought he was turning into a quack. And he had to put up with that, but financially he was doing quite fine. So the same year, in 1958, in the U.K., there's a man named uh, McCarnus, and he wrote a book, small book, called Eat Fat, Grow Slim. And even that, you can go on, and he was interviewed in those newsreels. So um, probably not many of you remember, and I certainly don't, uh, the newsreels of the 40s and 50s. That's how they did it. When you went to the theater, they had these little blurbs you did ahead of time. Well, he was in the newsreels of showing people how to lose weight. So weight was still a problem then, just as it was 100 years even before him with William Banting. And he basically said, you know, don't eat carbs, just eat veggies. You know, even veggies are carbs, but he differentiated that. So in the same year, you had, in essence, the same idea being produced in two different parts of a very populated Western culture to go forward. Um, McCarnus really didn't follow up on that much. Um, and uh, I haven't heard what happened to Pennington, but clearly Atkins followed, with, followed up with Pennington's ideas. So now, still around the 1958-1961 era, I wanted to give you kind of a, a contextual understanding of what was happening because what was laid down in 1961 was Ansel Keys. Ansel Keys was the man of the year for Time magazine, and Ansel Keys is the one that said saturated fat, and uh, f- saturated fat in particular, and high cholesterol were killing Americans. They're responsible for heart disease and stroke, et cetera, et cetera. Now this becomes, that is a saturated fat is the ultimate evil and it's driving up your cholesterol. And if you have high cholesterol, you are destined for a heart attack and, and or stroke, any sort of uh, cardiovascular disease you are prone to have. This becomes a dominant view for diet for the next 60 years. So it takes it up really up to the current. If you go in to talk to your doc and say about, what does he think about saturated fats? He's going to say it's bad. What do you think about elevated cholesterol? Bad. So he put you on a statin. So that's the knee-jerk reaction that's been around for 50 to 60 years. Interesting, eh? The dominant view. Until 1916, 1916, sorry, 2016, 2016, um, an author, a woman by the name of Nina Teicholtz, wrote a book called The Big Fat Surprise. She went back and she analyzed all of Ansel Keys' research, came forward through time of other, and realized that saturated fats actually aren't the evil. Elevated cholesterol is not a bad thing. So I hope to encourage you to read Big Fat Surprise, came out in 2016, which is what, less than two years ago. 
uh, and you'll be surprised. I won't get into that, but a whole podcast could be given on just that book. All right, so now we're entering into the modern modern era of the ketogenic diet, and we have two competing views primarily. And one is the Atkins program, which was, to remember that? The Atkins, we, we talked about the what they call the classic ketogenic diet, which is the one I told you about before that was made at the Mayo Clinic of the 10 to 15 grams of carbohydrates and one gram per kilogram of body weight for protein and the rest fat. Um, Atkins diet was more liberal than that. It basically just said under 20 grams of carbohydrates a day um, and eat as much uh, protein as you'd like and don't worry about the fats. There's now a modified Atkins, which basically says it would be good if you added fats. That is count your carbs, add more fats, and don't worry about your protein. So that's in essence the modified Atkins. Um, and that was in the 70s. His book came out in the 70s. They're following along. In 1971, primarily out of making the ketogenic diet being a little easier for epileptic children and anybody on epilepsy that wants to do the ketogenic diet, they come up with a thing called the MCT diet. So medium chain triglyceride diet. And um, I think most of us listening to this particular podcast realize what MCTs are. MCTs, you can find them in any health food store, certainly can find them on Amazon. But back then it was considered a medical oil, right? Special, came in a special jar as a medical oil, but it was still the same thing. MCT is a combination of two different saturated fatty acids. One is called um, C10, the other C8. We're just going to leave them at those, those names right now. They have other fancier names, but C10 or C8. And MCT is primarily C8, which is also called caprylic acid. And so the reason the MCT diet became popular is because it was more efficient at creating ketones. You didn't just eat fat. You ate this specifically for your fat. And since you could create ketones more efficiently, you could eat on a daily basis less fat. You could eat less fat and you actually could eat more ketones. Sorry, you could eat more carbohydrates and you could even eat more protein. So it liberalized the somewhat confined and limiting diet, classic ketogenic diet that was being used to treat epileptic children and made it a little easier to uh, endure. So that was 1971. On through that, you know, in the 80s, you have somebody, Steve Finney, who starts uh, studying uh, athletes, you know, on uh, various kinds of diets and um, showing that it's advantageous. We'll leave it at that because that becomes a hot button, certainly right up to now. In 1989, we have the first comparative uh, study done comparing the um, classic ketogenic diet to the MC diet and find out that they're both comparable. So they're ditto, if you will. They're slightly different. One's easier, you know, but they're basically right on the nose. 1990, you'll hear a name that I'll refer to in future podcasts, Dr. Eric Westman, who's down at Duke. I've met him and talked to him a number of times. He worked with Dr. Atkins in developing, and he's developed a specialty in obesity. So he sees obesity patients. And he basically brings them into, in essence, the Atkins or the modifying Atkins diet. And he has huge success. And he basically just focuses on one thing initially. Get your carbs down to only 20 grams of carbohydrates per day. And then it might work at other things. But the, if they did nothing else and just did that, they'd have remarkable uh, progress in losing weight. All right. Second big inflection point. In 1994... There is a program on the NBC Dateline report 
about a little boy, a four-year-old boy by the name of Charlie Abrams. Charlie Abrams is severely epileptic. He's gone through all sorts of medical treatments and even some surgical, and nothing has happened, and nothing has helped him. And his father, uh, who happens to be a, a movie producer, you'll know the movies he's produced. He's a movie producer, but he was determined to have his son treated or find something. So he was totally despairing. They're, they went through all the different medications for controlling epilepsy, and they didn't control them. They just drugged him out. As he would say, his son was living, li- living life by slices of moments of consciousness between his medications. Um, he discovered uh, a book about the ketogenic diet that was written from Johns Hopkins State uh, Center for Ketogenic Therapies, or Pediatric Epilepsy is what they called it at the time. And he thought, this is odd. There's a diet for epilepsy? He, he had never heard of it. It, it, look, it had come, come out of favor. Since the 1930s, more medications for epilepsy had come on. So the ketogenic diet, which was all the rage from the 20s to 30s, totally dropped out of sight. So he's reading about this, and it's still being done only at Johns Hopkins, pretty much in the United States. Nobody else is doing it. And you know, dietitians haven't been trained, nurses haven't been trained. It's only at Johns Hopkins. So he calls Johns Hopkins, flies his son out there. They learn about the ketogenic diet. And the way they did ketogenic diet from the 20s to the 30s, and, and even up to the current for the most part, is they had children fast for two days. And then they gradually started them into uh, the ketogenic diet, as described. And right now they offer, in essence, four different variations of ketogenic diet, the classic ketogenic diet, the MCT ketogenic diet, the Atkins diet, and the um, actually the modified Atkins diet, and what they call low glycemic, um, which is not necessarily a ketogenic diet. Low glycemic just means low-carb foods in general, and that's been somewhat successful as well. So you have choices now. But this was back in the good old days of it's the ketogenic diet, classic ketogenic diet. So he learned how to do it. Within two days, um, Charlie Abrams, seizures stopped. They obviously kept on, um, they really took it seriously and they they stayed on the diet for a number of years. So due to a couple things, uh, Jim Abrams, uh, savviness with the media, he had his story brought into, his son's story brought into um, Nightline to be covered. And uh, he invested in, he started a foundation called the Charlie Foundation, named after his son, for initially uh, pediatric, pediatric epilepsy. It's now been changed to the Charlie Foundation for the ketogenic diet, because the ketogenic diet is now applied to a lot of other things. Um, and it's become a big success. In fact, because of Charlie Abrams' um, work and a foundation and disseminating information, to other hospitals and retraining all these people that uh, Johns Hopkins got overwhelmed with uh, so many people that now there's many other hospitals that work with ketogenic diet and epilepsy and ketogenic diet and other things as well. And uh, he didn't stop there. He put in um, his funds into the first ever multi-center, multi-study center for the study of uh, ketogenic diet um, for epilepsy. So that was the first time that was ever done. So Having documentation, good documentation, at the point I'm mentioning this, is really just a new thing. There is not great studies going way back. This is the beginning of the era of having good data to work from. So in 2000, 
this is comparison. All the studies, quote-unquote studies, or the, a lot of them are handwritten, right? If you went back to the 1920s before, they're all handwritten. And who knows how the, the studies, what the studies had in common and how they did their studies. But all these studies prior to 2000 were a total of, on the ketogenic diet, total of 225, 225. All the studies done on the ketogenic diet since year 2000 and to the year 2015 were 1,400. There's a huge interest in the ketogenic diet right now. And not only that, it's now being studied for about physical performance. I mentioned that before. Alzheimer's, depression. Those are studies in 2004 that have been continuing. 2005, studies in Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury, type 2 diabetes, uh, Lafornia body disease, which is a genetic form of a, a progressive epilepsy, a PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, which affects a lot of women, uh, metabolic syndrome, ALS, that was in 2006, 2007, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and migraines. That's amazing. Uh, I didn't mention cancer. There was first study on cancer was 19, and uh, uh, more anecdotal was uh, 1995. So things are really opening up to application. And in 2010, Jeff Folick, Ohio State, is now uh, documenting and uh, writing about, this is 2010, The Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Living, Art and Science of Low-Carbohydrate Performance. That's amazing. The concept of saturated fats is bad is now openly challenged. The use and promotion of MCT oil is gaining popularity. Uh, and let me say, for those who are living, you, you're living for those of you who are listening to this, um, you know I'm a big fan of C8, which is half of that, half of the MCT oil, a caprylic acid for being even more effective and putting that in your food and so on. We can talk about that in another podcast. Um, 2004, Thomas Siegfried, Boston College, writes a book, Cancer is a Metabolic Disease. It totally blows the lid off of, of looking at cancer differently. It's not a genetic disease. It's a metabolic disease, meaning if you get away from sugar and carbohydrates and focus on high fats, low carb, which you now know, um, you'll generate ketones. Ketones uh, can't have and can possibly reverse the growth of many cancers. That's still being uh, described. There are not a lot of studies out there, but that was, you know, there's now conferences just because of the writing of that particular book. 2006, Stephen Cunet writes a book called, um, and he's from Sherbrooke University in Quebec. He's an expert in brain metabolism. And so his book was Survival of the Fattest, The Key to Human Brain Evolution. So it's a great book to read. I'll give you the, and this totally relates to the ketogenic diet. It's basically saying humans weren't able to grow a brain until they had a surplus of fat in their diet. Hence, we have, our brain is all fat. We're fat heads, if you will. But it was also because we lived by the shore where we ate fish. We ate fatty fish, some animals, but primarily it was a shoreline existence. So we had shellfish. You had lots of shellfish. You had lots of fish and you ate whatever veggies were at the shoreline. That was it. But he's primarily advocating. And it's really interesting. If you cross this with the Inuit way of life, high fish, high fat diet, um, high omega-3 diet, you're going to have to say, which is a lot about brain health. But that was the core. It was that it wasn't until we had a high fat diet that we were able to evolve our fat heads. 2008 uh, was a first randomized controlled trial proving the efficacy of uh, the ketogenic diet for the man management of epilepsy 
in children. So as much as it's been talked about since the 1920s, this was the first randomized controlled. Isn't it amazing how, so I'm saying this is the new era of data. 2014, neurological conditions, as I mentioned before, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, MS. In 2014, Tim Noakes is an author, an MD, an athlete in South Africa who totally reversed his uh, recommendations for athletes' diets, which was high-carb diet and the whole carb-loading aspect. He reversed himself to a high-carb, sorry, reversed himself to a low-carb, high-fat diet, ketogenic diet, and he's come under such intense scrutiny that um, the medical profession, this reminds you of Dr. Harvey, remember that in the 1860s? The medical profession of South Africa brought him to court and were ready to strip his license away. He's been in court for two and a half years to keep his license, and only um, less than two months ago was he exonerated, exonerated completely of any wrongdoing, and uh, he's up and running and as loud and vociferous and passionate about the ketogenic diet, um, especially in regards to uh, type 1 and type 2 diabetes and athletic involvement. So it's an amazing story. Not only that, in the course of his trials, doctors from around the world internationally came to testify on his behalf. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be made into a movie. So I want to leave this now. I want to close this now by saying our next session is going to be talking about what they call exogenous ketones. Can you actually make ketones? What would, if you had a a canister of ketones, how much would you take and what would you take them for and how effective are they and who should take them? So that will be for the next one. First exogenous ketones are created. That's that's a couple of years ago and the first exogenous esters have just come out. So more to talk. Thank you for your time and I hope this has certainly been useful. More to come. Thanks for listening. For anybody who has any questions, feel free to contact me on our Facebook group, Keto Naturopath. Same name as our podcast. I'm open to any questions and we plod through the good and the bad, the difficult and the easy week after week.